Welcome, everyone, to our latest NCAA Social Series. I'm Andy Katz. I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Brian Hainline, the NCAA's Chief Medical Officer. And uh, Dr. Hainline, we want to go over a couple of broad topics uh, here in the spring as we're getting ready for spring championships, really, in earnest. Uh, they're going to start coming fast and furious in May into June. Um, let's first deal with spring football has just for the most part concluded. Uh, so we're going to get into summer workouts and then the fall football season at the FCS and FBS level. Where are we right now with concussions? Well, first of all, great to be with you again, uh, Andy. So, so with concussion, there has been so much progress made really when we look at the science of concussion and then when we look at how that has translated into rules changes uh, at the NCAA level. So I, I think most people understand that we have this great relationship with the Department of Defense. So there's the NCAA DOD Care Consortium. And recently there was funding approval, an additional $42.5 million of funding for this study to now go long-term. And so that means that NCA student athletes and uh, service academy cadets are gonna be followed for years on end now to try to understand the natural history of concussion, repetitive head impact exposure, and even what it means to brain health by training at an elite level, because there, there may well be many benefits. But, but just drilling down to concussion, we, we saw that with some results that came from the CARE Consortium that looked at the preseason in football. And, and, and this paper demonstrated that the preseason was taking up relatively more uh, concussions and repetitive head impact exposures compared to the rest of the season. And this led to rules changes and legislation change really in record setting time. And so the preseason was considerably modified uh, this year. We're taking that same approach to looking at the spring season. So, so that's just from a football specific point of view, the way the practices are conducted and practices are modifiable. Um, it really should be of uh, and more benefit to the, the, the football athletes because we have data that has just emerged that has allowed us to create different sorts of policy and rules. And then the, lastly on concussion, I'll just say, when we look at what's happened across the student athletes in our 24 sports, the way concussion is being managed has also shifted as we're learning more about it. And whereas many years ago, uh, student athletes were returning to play uh, sooner, sometimes you know within a week, sometimes within a day, that's where the, the, the science was and, and where the recommendations were at that time. Now we see that it's very common for student athletes to be out for about a month after a concussion. That has become more of the norm. And again, all of that is because of emerging data, emerging science that are helping guide the membership and, and really uh, helping guide our service academy cadets and, and the world at large. You know, two other things, Brian, that I think are really critical to dive into here. It is not just, as you mentioned, a football issue. I, I can think of a number of examples um, you know, I do a lot of work with the Big Ten. There were two high-profile Big Ten athletes this basketball season that had concussions and had, you know, uh, symptoms for a long stretch of time. And that we've talked about this, and maybe you can reinforce how no two concussions are the same and how you react to it or come out of it. That 
Player X could maybe be back in a week, but player Y may be back in three, four weeks because they're still not 100%. Um, how, are, how are we doing in terms of coaches and athletic trainers understanding that no two are alike? Yeah, so I think the understanding is, is really reaching uh, across the sports world. Um, and it's exactly that point, Andy, that, that no two concussions are alike. And what is common after a concussion is to have symptoms. But some individuals have what are called persistent symptoms. So, for example, you might be dizzy for a week, two weeks, three weeks. Or you might have disordered sleeping. You just can't sleep properly. You don't get enough sleep or you're sleeping too much. Or you may have developed a mood disorder and, and you're feeling depressed or anxious. Or you're seeing double for a, a longer period of time. And these are what we call persistent symptoms. And now we understand that if you really tune into these symptoms, one can do targeted therapy to address them. And there's a different way that we can start exercising. There's something called a, a sub-threshold aerobic exercise. So even when individuals have symptoms, we can exercise them in a certain way. So with the emerging data, we're understanding that we can start targeting our treatment. And this becomes very effective in minimizing these persistent symptoms and then helping individuals to, to return back to their life, to return to study and, and to return to play. Ryan, this is also, I think, a great example of what sometimes the general public and even the membership fully doesn't grasp what goes on in something like this. The fact that we've got, you know, collaboration with the Department of Justice, excuse me, Department of Defense um, and scientists and researchers that just, just doesn't just happen, that this has to be a coordination, a collaboration between multiple entities that someone has to put together. When you look back at what this has done in terms of this study specifically and others, how important it is that, you know, whether it's the NCAA home office or other entities working together across the entire landscape of the membership, divisions one, two, and three. Yeah, so I always remember, uh, Andy, you, you, you know, the when this was announced, and, and it was announced actually the day before the formal signature, and it was announced by President Barack Obama. So this had buy-in from the highest level of our government, because, of course, the Department of Defense reports to our Commander-in-Chief, the President of the United States. And so the way this came together now with 30 NCA member schools from all three divisions, including the four service academies, and working with the Department of Defense and these 30 incredible research member institutions. It's, it's a collaboration. I, I don't know. I, I, I still sometimes pinch myself when I realize how it's happened. It's exceeded all of our expectations. And the bottom line is, this is the largest, most comprehensive concussion and repetitive head impact study ever done in history. And it's answering critical questions because when we started this study, we didn't even understand the natural history of concussion and there were no objective biomarkers of concussion. So 
it, it's been phenomenal and, and a collaborative level that, that I, I think is really unsurpassed. Um, when, when we look at long-term research, this has to be at the top. All right, I wanna shift now to COVID. Um, whoever makes the decision of what phase we're in of the pandemic, endemic, I don't know. But the bottom line is cases are still out there, but we're in a different phase where, and we're seeing this obviously in the NBA playoffs where some individuals may be in health and safety protocols and maybe they're out the five days and days six through 10. You know, we've sort of come to accept that. Obviously mandates have come down even with, uh, you know, airlines and airports and public transportation, um, but it still is happening. Um, you know, we've got championships now coming up in the month of May and into June. Where are we at the collegiate level in how we are handling COVID? Yeah, so what's important to emphasize when you were talking about concussion and a collaboration is the collaboration that has really guided the NCAA membership. So we've had this uh, uh, COVID-19 medical advisory group. We've also worked with the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine COVID Working Group, and then the Autonomy 5 uh, uh, COVID Medical Group. All three of these groups have been working together to provide guidance for the membership. And what we all agreed really just a few weeks ago is that we have essentially been able to neutralize pretty effectively the virus that is responsible for COVID-19 through a combination of vaccines, antiviral treatment, understandings, uh, syndromic surveillance. So where is the virus in, in your community? and different ways that we can manage it. So uh, in essence, what the medical advisory group with the other two groups recommended is that we actually move to something called standard precautions and transmission-based precautions. So we take a common sense approach, just like we do with the flu, just like we do with other viruses that cause the common cold or cause bronchitis. So we moved away from screening for COVID-19, for testing asymptomatic individuals, and really taking this evidence-based approach of standard precautions, transmission-based precautions, and that each member school manages COVID-19 and other respiratory infections in a way that makes sense using those sorts of guidelines that are out there for everyone. And so, Things look different, and, and yes, there are still COVID cases going around, and there are still influenza cases and other respiratory viruses that are going around. Uh, but we've taken a giant step back from the way we used to do all of the surveillance testing. We're managing it locally, and, and the member schools are, are doing it in a way with their local public health authorities. And just again, using this very good common sense approach to respiratory infections. So what, uh, if any, guidelines will be in, will be in place uh, for the spring championships? So for the championships, at every championships place, there uh, really will be guidance for how we really carry through standard precautions and transmission-based precautions. And if individuals do become symptomatic, uh, there will be testing available on site at the championships to look for COVID and to look for other uh, illnesses such as uh, influenza and, and the like. And then the way that that's managed is, is going to be a combination, uh, depending on the results, of how you would manage any 
respiratory infection and how the local public health authorities are recommending management of COVID-19. So the key thing is if symptomatic, which is what is happening in the general society. The last thing on this topic, um, in the fall, we don't know if this is going to happen, but it seems like it's trending this way. There was such a big push, obviously, for getting vaccinated, getting boosted, um, and then obviously the flu shot. Uh, what will be sort of that that guideline, that that push when we get into the fall, when we know that some sort of viral infection, whether it is still COVID or the flu, will come back in the winter? Uh, so in that in that October to December time frame, what are we thinking long term about what recommendations could be coming? Well, great question. I think we're really um, waiting for the public health guidance. Uh, to come through on that. And so it may look like uh, uh, one of a few things. There may be a much more specific COVID-19 vaccine, which is sort of reimagined vis-a-vis -vis the emerging variants. Um, there may be an intranasal vaccine, which is an interesting concept. That's different than uh, the, the vaccine that you where you receive a, a, a shot subcutaneously. There may actually be a vaccine that um, really targets many different kinds of coronaviruses. So recall COVID-19 is a coronavirus and that's responsible for a lot of other upper respiratory infections. So we don't know yet. Um, and, and so right now we're still in this place of to get a second booster or, or not. And, and those that guidance has come from the CDC for certain vulnerable groups to receive that. But I think it's a little too early to know where we'll actually be in the fall. And I think there's gonna be a, a, a several steps that are gonna take place sort of in the evolution of what really makes sense for vaccines as, as we move through uh, the summer season and we're then moving into the fall. And Brian, what, one of the offshoots of COVID obviously has, uh, has been the mental health crisis in all of society, especially for young people. Uh, and, and I've talked to countless athletes and coaches and administrators who in 2020, 2021, um, you know, it was really hard dealing with the quarantining, the isolation, whether you contact traced or you had COVID or multiple times that you were quarantined uh, and the isolation of even eating by yourself and going right back and not socializing with anybody outside of those very few times that you were with your teammates and then re-enter sort of re-entering society of the college campus when everything was back with in-person and the intensity of classes. Uh, there's obviously been at least three tragedies recently, and we're going to dive deeper into this in our social series this month. But just, just to take a, a, a larger view here of um, what can be done to ensure that not just more mental health professionals are on college campuses with the athletic departments, but also that student-athletes and coaches are feeling like it's okay to seek out that help. And if you need to take a break, that it should be embraced that you should go and deal with anything that you're dealing with in your life. Yeah, so first Andy, you know what COVID-19 did to our society is it isolated so many people. And the bottom line is when we understand what it means to be human, we are social creatures. That's how we thrive. That's how we are able to strive to excellence. We're not individual islands. And so, you know, by taking us away from our common humanity, 
Um, it's not surprising that we saw such a spike and increase in depression, anxiety, even post-traumatic stress disorder, because so many individuals had to deal with tragedies in, in their family and, and things that they hadn't seen before. So all of that is, is, is part of the reality um, as we move forward. And, and so I think it's important that we just don't move forward not having recognized the, 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 you know, the onslaught of, of so many different things that, that COVID brought to us, but to understand that. And, and within that understanding that we all need to come back and, and re-socialize in a way that makes sense where, where we take into account the sufferings that we have had. And, and that's why, you know, Andy, I'm, I'm another thing I'm really grateful for when you talk about collaboration. The NCAA mental health best practices. So this was put together by the NCAA membership in conjunction with 25 of the leading mental health and medical organizations in our country. And that not only is a resource, it's legislation that every member school should have at their campus, mental health resources consistent with this document. And so what does that mean? It, it doesn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden you start hiring all of these sports psychologists because sometimes sports psychologists aren't even licensed mental health providers. What it means is that everyone collectively at each member school, they take this guidance that is there and they set up a community, if you will, where it's okay to ask for help, where we try to promote a sense of wellness, where we understand that the mind and body are deeply interconnected. We know, for example, that if you have mental health symptoms or disorders, that actually makes you more vulnerable to developing physical injuries. And that if you develop a physical injury, and in your recovery, even if that included surgery, you become depressed. That makes the recovery more difficult to really come to fruition. So the mind and body are always working together on this. And what we state in the document, this, this, this incredible collaborative document that, that really arose ultimately from our great committee on competitive safeguards and medical aspects of sports, is that coaches play a huge role in this. Well, and the thing, Brian, I was thinking about this, that, you know, when, when a student athlete gets to campus in the summer, it's all about the strength and it's all about the body, not as much the mind. How do we get to a point where on a proactive basis, not reactive, if something is going on in your life, but checking in even before, you know, how are you? What is going on in your life before you get to a crisis uh, situation? What should athletic departments do about getting on in the getting out on the front end versus reacting to a potential, uh, you know, tragic situation? Yeah, great question. So there were a, a, a few things I was going to talk about the, the the coaches, but let's let's take a step back. Even for the team physicians and athletic trainers, uh, they understand with with this document that just as we do a physical for physical uh, uh, symptoms and and signs, we do the same check in for mental health 
symptoms and signs. And so that's really important at that level. But the other thing, and, and it's the, that the document recommends is that at the beginning of each season, the coaches gather with the teams and they make it very clear that it's okay not to be okay. And they make it very clear that there are uh, 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 systems set in place whereby if a student athlete wants to see a licensed mental health provider, this is what this member school has set up. And that everyone on staff, including all the student athletes, are aware of what steps to take if there's an emergency. So that's what we call uh, you, you know, uh, an emergency mental health action plan. And so what if someone is appearing um, as if they are suicidal or they're suddenly expressing thoughts that, that are worrisome, that everyone has a rehearsed action plan to how to move through with that athlete. And that athlete is not left alone until that plan is put in place. So it really is a, an, a phenomenal collaborative effort that the coaches with the athletic trainers, with the uh, uh, team physicians and the athletic directors everyone becomes involved in this because it's just part of what needs to happen at every single campus to ensure good physical and mental health. But you can't have good physical health if you're ignoring mental health, that's for sure. And I would add one other thing, Brian, you tell me if I'm wrong here, that um, not to put uh, this burden on the peers, but I think they also have a responsibility to look out for each other. And it's not snitching. It's not, you know, ratting on someone. If you sense that your teammate is not doing well, then it's incumbent upon, I think, that individual to say something and to reach out to the appropriate people within the department, the coaching staff. Uh, because a lot of times, as you know, as a professional, that individual may not feel uh, you know, that they can actually s advocate for themselves for whatever reason. And hopefully that we're going to see that collection, that collaboration within the team to do so to help each other out. Yeah, Andy, that's such a, 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 a wonderful point. And, and you know, it's actually not unique to mental health. So as part of the research with the Department of Defense um, for concussion, uh, it would really demonstrated that you need to look out for your teammates. And if they're concussed or ignoring it, you need to step up and help that person because it's very important that that, that concussion be managed. We see that in sexual violence, that it's something called bystander intervention. If you're at a party or a social event and you see something that is not right, you see possible predatory behavior, that we need to step up and we, we, we step in, if you will, uh, for, the, for the individual who, who potentially is being threatened. And it's the same thing for mental health. It's, it's a collective buddy system or bystander intervention where we're all looking out for one another. And that really is a phenomenal uh, cooperative environment. And it's an environment of, of care and compassion. And so for, for all of these sorts of issues and, and certainly for, for mental health, we all need to be willing to step up, to step in and not to be afraid to say something, but to feel empowered to say something because that's the right thing to do. 
Well, uh, I tell you, Brian, so many of these topics, you've done a phenomenal job of uh, great collaboration. We've seen it over the last two plus years, uh, whether it's Dr. Carlos Del Rio or Dr. Kitty O'Neill, we brought together, you brought together unbelievable minds and voices across the spectrum that have really helped schools manage uh, this pandemic among many other issues. Um, more to discuss at a later date. Uh, as always, uh, many episodes with Dr. Brian Hainline. You can go to ncaa.org slash social series where you can find all our social series archived on many of these topics. We will continue to dive deeper into a number of them. Thanks for watching, everyone. Mm -hmm.